and I'm now thrilled to welcome our first panel to the, to the stage. Um, I will say their names and titles as they are taking their seats, and I will uh, try to do so. My colleague, Ida Rademacher, is to my far left, and she will be moderating this panel. Ida is the executive director of the Institute's Financial Security Program. Um, uh, on the panel with Ida is Marie Downey, executive director of the Best Hospitality Training Corp. Um, uh, Clint Key, Research Officer, Financial Security and Mobility at the Pew Charitable Trust. Robert Levy, Managing Director for Financial Services Innovation. And Diane Winland, Manager, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I will now turn it over to Ida to take it to the next level. Thank you. Thanks, Maureen. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or happy lunchtime, whatever, <laughs> whatever meal you're eating is the time of day it is. Uh, I, before we get started, uh, and this is an amazing room of people, but there are a few people standing in the back. If there is an empty seat beside you, would you raise your hand? And for those in the back who would wish to have a seat, um, please go and make friends. And you know, <laughs> don't, don't be shy about getting intimate and giving yourself a little elbow room as you come through. Uh, so uh, we're delighted to continue this Work and Wealth series with a topic that is increasingly becoming a bit of a buzz, at least when you work in the consumer finance world, uh, like, like I do, except for the times when I'm masquerading still as Maureen's associate director, uh, which is where I started my work in the workforce world. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, great uh, new interest and really rigorous research to, to get to that point uh, that, that we were talking about earlier about what is financial health, what is financial wellness, what is that definition? And in fact, one of the projects that I did shortly before coming back to the, uh, to the Aspen Institute was uh, working closely for the, um, on contract though with an amazing team for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, really finding a consumer-driven definition of financial well-being. So around the country, uh, that project was really geared at asking you know, hundreds of people if for them, what did financial well-being consist of? Uh, and it was interesting that what emerged out of that was um, old or young, black or white, the same basic tenets. Uh, and uh, we've kind of shortened that, and there's a lot of, but there was a lot of convergence that that process yielded a very similar kind of definition to what Rob can talk about from um, Consumer Financial Service Innovations financial health definition. But it had these four components uh, that you, you all have started to hear about. This idea that you're feeling in control of the day-to-day that people really felt in control of what, what they needed to do to manage their financial lives, that they had the ability to withstand an economic shock, they had resilience, that they felt on track to meet their long-term financial goals, uh, key among which, at least through the employer platform, has been retirement. And that last element was a little bit harder to grasp, but this idea that you had the capacity to take advantage of opportunity and enjoy life. So whether that meant taking your kids to dinner, whether it meant um, taking the opportunity for summer school or taking a vacation, that's additional capacity to have a quality of life and the freedom uh, that we were just talking about. So what this panel, uh, this first panel today, is really going to unpack a little bit of a sound check against, well, if those are the components, how are we doing, America? You know, if those are the components of financial well-being, how are we doing? And, uh, and, and so we have a bunch of different ways to get at that point. And as I've discussed before uh, with the panel in preparation, um, this is gonna be a dialogue. We, we, in some ways, we wanna be more improvisational and conversational around this and leave a lot of time for conversation with you in the audience because there's a lot of people here in this room that could be on a panel today and vice versa. This is a very exciting room of people who are thinking deeply around this issue of the employer's role in creating financial well-being. So I'm gonna start um, 
actually with Clint uh, Key from, the, from Pew uh, Charitable Trusts, with a little bit of the research that many of you might have seen. I know Michelle Singletary last week had a column um, really highlighting two of the most recent papers of some of the national surveying you've done. But could you take a little bit of a picture of if that's the definition of what well-being is, how are we doing, America? Absolutely. Thank you, Ida, and thank you all for being here. If you have to be inside on a lovely spring day in Washington, this is the right place to have chosen to do it. Um, unfortunately, Ida set me up to be the bearer of bad news, and it's a, it's a mantle that our data demands that, that I carry. When we look out across a broad metrics of financial well-being for all types of households in the US at different levels of income, different types of family compositions in different geographic areas of the country, we see a few commonalities in these households. The first, and I think this is important and shouldn't get lost in the conversation, is the aspirations financially of households around the country are starkly modest. People wouldn't mind winning the lottery, don't get me wrong, no one's gonna turn down those winnings, but that's not really the dream that Americans have. In our survey of American family finances, we asked people if they'd rather have economic mobility, the traditional American dream, or if they want financial stability today for their families. In 92% of households, the overwhelming majority by any demographic combination we can think to cut it with, tell us that they want stability. When we go out and talk to people about their financial lives directly through interviews, what we hear repeatedly is, I just want to be able to sleep. I want to feel like I can breathe. I don't want to have to worry. And measured by that standard, by the needs and desires of American households, the status quo just isn't working for people. And I'm going to throw a bunch of statistics at you from us. Rob has an equivalent set from CFSI. Anyone who works in this field has a laundry list of bad news. We, we see households facing challenges in the short run. We see households fa facing challenges in the long run, houses facing challenges in the medium term. When we look at per the pervasive financial shocks that households suffer, the sorts of things that we all expect to some degree and take for granted, things like a car breaking down, getting sick in an unexpected bill in the mail, about half of households in a given year have a significant unexpected financial expense like that. And of the households who have them, half are destabilized by their most expensive financial shock. Don't have the resources in terms of savings, don't have resources in terms of credit, don't have resources in their social networks to be resilient against financial shocks. And it's not a short-term effect for most of the households that are destabilized. Nearly half of households that we surveyed who were destabilized still hadn't recovered six months after the shock still were suffering, still were trying to dig themselves out of that financial hole. And then we look forward to see how households would do in the future based on the levels of savings, levels of resources that they can bring to bear. And what we see is that about 40% of households, four in 10, don't have the resources on hand in, in checking and savings accounts and cash saved at home to pay for a $2,000 expense. And I want to be really clear on this. I've been misquoted a few times. It's not that they can't afford a $2,000 expense. It's that they couldn't pay it at all. They couldn't even pay it and empty their accounts down to zero. Over half of households in the country don't have the resources to cover a month of their income if it were to cease. And when we talk to people, people want to have more money. They know that they need to have more savings. They want to be better insured to be more financially secure. But they don't really care about the dollars in the account. What they care about is the peace of mind 
that savings buys them. That's the role that money plays in the lives of the families that we talk to is in building a sense of control, in building a sense of security. And frankly, by all, the, all measures that we have today for most American households, that remains deeply elusive. Thanks. I think that's, uh, you know, for, for, for many of you, how many have been following Pew's research over a number of years now with this work? So it's good to see a number of hands. In some ways, the news isn't new, but it's, it's stark every time you hear it. And, um, and Diane, I actually want to come to you next because uh, PricewaterhouseCooper has also been tracking, uh, but really taking a different lens in some ways, right? So, so Clint and Pew uh, and many others in the room that I see people here from the Federal Reserve and CFED, mm -hmm. others who are really looking at overall the workforce and just workers' lives or just families, households in America. But your lens is specifically at Pricewaterhouse, and I would love for you to say a little bit about the longevity of this survey that you've been doing, but it's the sure. Employee Financial Wellness Survey. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, you coined that term before this was a buzz topic, yes. um, but you're looking specifically uh, through the lens of employees, and you also survey employers. So I wonder if you might add to some of the statistics. We'll get some of the statistics out of the way early. Um, add to the story that Clint has started to paint, but also to how that story might have changed as you've been conducting the survey over the last several years. Absolutely. Um, we've been doing this a little over seven years, I believe it is. And what we do is we survey employees only, as you had said. So what we're looking to find out is how people are thinking and feeling about their money, as well as what actions they're taking. So what are they actively doing with regard to being better with their money. And, and I have some good news to counterbalance all that bad news, which is over that time frame, the general trending has been upward. And so people understand, they've got the message, they have to manage their cash flow better, they have to control their debt, they need to put money aside for emergencies and for long-term savings. So they understand that, but the question comes then in, what are the anchors? What are the things that are keeping them from moving ahead? And those anchors tend to be very much what you found, which is there's stress, and then there's the lack of being able to meet that emergency when something unexpected comes up. And every year when we look at it, 50% of the people who answered our survey tell us they're stressed about their finances. And we ask them, what's your major stressor? What's the biggest thing that is stressing you out? 50% of the people are telling us, I won't be able to meet those emergency expenses when they come up. So it's a major stressor out there. Why is that important? People who are stressed about their finances are five times more likely to take time off of work to deal with their finances, their personal finances. They're much more likely to take three or more hours every single week to deal with something on the personal side. And they're more likely to call in sick and basically not be at work because they, um, they need to deal with something on the personal financial side. Now, there are a couple of major equalizers in here. Rising stock market, rising housing market. So if you do happen to have something saved and the stock market is doing well, just the idea of hearing that the stock market is up today and you know you've got some money in savings, it really buoys you, makes you feel good about what you're doing and the sacrifices you might be having to make in order to do that particular saving, whether it be short term or long term. So a rising stock market can help. Plus, if you look at your account, you see it's up, you might be, <laughs> might be happy about that. Rising housing market. As we think about what's happened in the housing market over the years, we know what happened during the boom and the bust. 
people during the boom were really using their houses like ATM machines. So they had a problem, they had an emergency expense, they went to the house, they got a home equity loan, they drew down on that line of credit and they used it. They were not able to do that after the bust. You might have had people who are in houses who really couldn't afford them, or they were working their way out. If they didn't end up in foreclosure, they were simply living in the house and paying for that expense. Housing prices have not risen enough and or lending um, practices have changed just a bit to tighten up control on those lending practices so that using your house as an emergency fund is really not an option for a lot of people now. And so those levers are starting to go away in terms of um, what people are using uh, to, to feed those um, emergency expenses. And I can talk more about which levers they're looking at later. Yeah, we'll drive in. But so even those who did have options in the past, their financial stress is also increasing in the surveys you're looking at because their options. It's, it's a constant. It stays yeah. constant at 50% and has stayed constant at 50% yeah. for about seven years now. Yeah, I think we, we, we think Maureen's program, the Economic Opportunities Program, you know, it's, it's, it's income, it's livelihood. Those are flows of cash coming in and out of your house. We tend to look at the stocks that you can rely on, and when both of those are being, um, you know, stranded, there's a problem with that. But you said something interesting in your, in your data that I want to bring into Rob into the conversation with. You said that you started to name the numbers. You know, five times more likely to be absent, five times more likely. Rob's got, um, NCFSI have a new paper coming out, uh, I think Employee Financial Health, the, yep. the, what is the second half of this exciting taper? Uh, how, <laughs> how companies can invest in workplace wellness. But there was a name in, in there that I found interesting. You didn't just talk about absenteeism, you talked about presenteeism yeah. uh, as part of what actually happens when, when employees are financially stressful. So I wonder, you know, and I love that where a CFSI is going is not just looking at the data and saying what's wrong, but looking at the role of employers in solving yeah. uh, the issues. So would you say a little bit to this presenteeism idea and some of the other things that are resonating from what you're hearing from the other speakers? Yeah, absolutely, and thank you Thanks. and everyone for having me. Um, and just because there are so many acronyms in this space that have C, F, S, and I in them. <laughs> uh, uh, I work for the Center for Financial Services Innovation, and uh, our mission as a nonprofit is to improve financial health in America. We lead a network of financial services innovators that are doing just that. And over the last year, we've been in a major research project around this idea of employee financial health, because what we're seeing from the companies in our network is that more and more they are realizing that the best place to reach, especially low-wage workers, but in many cases all Americans, is through the workplace. Um, that you have their attention, you have often the trust of their employer, not in all cases, of course, uh, and you have data that can reduce the cost of underwriting those consumers and getting those consumers faster, reducing acquisition costs. So for a lot of reasons, we're really excited about this place, this space, and we've been doing research in this area um, through the support of the Morgan Stanley. And um, we found a lot of things. Um, we actually took a lot of the research, some that you guys have done, some that you guys have done. We put all in one place, and we have the report coming out in, uh, I think, two weeks. So um, please check our website, cfsinnovation.com, if you're interested. And um, presenteeism is one of the big things that we looked at, which is really about being at work but not really being at work. Uh, and I think we all know that, right? When something's going on in your life, whether it's family or finances, um, you might not be as focused or present as you expect. Um, you know, when you said the number, was it three hours a week people spend? Three or more. Three or more spend it. I was like, wow, that sounds really high. Then I was like, how many of you have ever paid a bill while at work? <laughs> Checked your stock portfolio, <laughs> right? Um, imagine if you're living paycheck to paycheck, and if every day the amount that comes into your account really matters and the expenses that are coming out really matter. 
that's going to take more than once a week kind of thing. That could be something you are spending three hours a week. Some studies have said that employees lose up to seven, excuse me, employers lose up to $7,000 per year per employee due to financial distraction and presenteeism and absenteeism. And there's a lot of studies that are out there. And we can talk about which ones are better than the others maybe later, but um, I think there's a lot of costs that employers are facing. Um, the, what's exciting is that there is a real trend and a real emergence amongst employers to address this issue of financial wellness. It comes from the physical wellness space, which was a buzz maybe five years ago, right, in the, in the employer space and offering yoga classes or work-life balance stuff and uh, childcare and going beyond health insurance as a benefit for, for employees. And now it's come to be financial wellness because employers have realized that financial stress is a real issue and costs money, and it also makes your employees more stressed. And employers actually care about their employees most of the time. Um, the one poll, I think, from Aon, show, Aon Hewitt showed that 58% of employers this year are offering some kind of financial wellness program, and that number could go up to 80% by next year. Um, now, that's a survey, so who knows? I, I would love, actually, better market intelligence on what employers are really offering. But one of the things that we say really strongly in our paper is that we have to be clear about what we mean around financial wellness and what a financial wellness program is. And I'm not concerned about the definition of financial right. wellness, well-being, or financial health, which is what CFSI uses. The goal is better consumer financial health outcomes. Um, but when we talk about the solutions, are we talking about just education? Are we talking about maybe even souped-up tech-savvy education on an app? Are we talking about a coach and an advisor? Or are we getting beyond that and starting to talk about financial services and products? Things that can help people build up that emergency savings. Things that can help people access credit, smooth their income, um, pay down their student debt. And we're seeing a lot of trends in all of these spaces starting to merge in the, emerge in the workplace beyond just education. And that's what's really exciting and happy to talk more about that. Yeah, great. And we, and we will. And I think, again, you all should be thinking about your own questions to each other as well as, <laughs> as uh, other pieces. But you know, I think this wouldn't be the reconnecting work and wealth uh, series, unless we really made sure that we grounded a conversation about financial health and the real structure of jobs and the real quality of work. And so, Marie, I think that you know your voice and your experience, both personally and in what you do at best, um, can help to really ground this conversation in the full toolbox at the disposal of an employer when they think about increasing the financial health of a workforce, and also the role of. Um, uh, you know, of, of the skills and the training and just the whole package in that regard. So I just invite you to kind of come into this conversation, uh, not narrowly in terms of a new set of financial health strategies, but in terms of the longstanding uh, types of ways that employers have always been really the foundation of financial health uh, for, for the workforce in America. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. You know, I grew up in South Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, I was the oldest of eight siblings. and. My parents were hardworking people uh, who worked minimum wage jobs. And their best efforts kept us trapped in poverty. And they believed in the American dream and uh, hoped their children would do better than them. And most of their children have not made it to the, to the middle class. Uh, in, at 16, I quit high school. I had lost hope uh, that there was a way out. And a loss of hope is a costly thing for all of us. For the next 12 years, I, I struggled moving from job to job. And then I eventually got a position as a food server at the Boston Park Plaza Hotel, beautiful hotel. 
And that job changed the direction of my life. The job provided decent wages and benefits, health care, dental. I felt valued, and I soon became an excellent employee. Uh, I was fortunate to find that job. It took me a while to figure out why that job was different than others I had. Uh, and I learned that the hotel workers had a union, Unite Here, Local 26. There was a collective bargaining agreement in place, and, and what I found was that that's a social and economic contract between employers and employees, uh, working together, mutual respect. The job stabilized my life. I got my GED, went on, got a uh, master's degree in social work from Boston College, and 20 years later, I opened BEST. And at best, we are a workforce development agency, a nonprofit that focuses on training incumbent hotel workers who want to uh, advance their skills or remain relevant, and those that want to come into the industry. Oftentimes, you don't think about hospitality jobs, dishwashers, and housekeepers as good jobs. Um, but, but that's not the case here. My story's not unique. I can share countless stories of hotel workers who overcame poverty and despair. Uh, they have bought homes, become citizens, sent their children to college. Many of them remain housekeepers or dishwashers for 20 to 30 years, being very productive and loyal workers. Life isn't easy for all of them, but, but a quality job has been the cornerstone of that. You know, when we start to listen to what employers and employees need in order to be productive and successful, we see many things are possible. <clears throat> the hotel industry is very profitable for the shareholders, and that's important. Uh, but the double bottom line approach benefits us all. In, in Boston, hotel workers within this partnership make family-sustaining wages. Dishwashers, housekeepers, cooks, they make $21.45 per hour, and banquet service and bartenders make about $90,000. The good wages and benefits allow thousands of hotel workers to contribute to society in meaningful ways, right? Uh, providing for their families, paying taxes, purchasing goods and services from local merchants, and their employees the employer's value by having dependable, focused um, employees. These benefits that they've been able to put together, uh, together, again, labor and management working together, low-cost health care, uh, $48 a month for a family plan where there's no copay or no deductible, dental benefits, $10,000 for the purchase of a home, first-time home buyer's loan, prepaid legal plan so you can get a lawyer to help you to make that transaction at no cost, um, and they have a defined variable benefit plan. Where they, really, they had a new plan created with Chiron in New York uh, to mitigate risk um, because they found that, that workers were not able to save, really. So this was a way that money just goes in, they don't see it. Uh, and they're also able to come to the education and training services that we offer. 
The hotel industry in Boston is booming, and within the next five years, thousands yeah. more of these good jobs will be available. And they'll, and they'll be well-trained and skilled workers uh, ready to be hired. We, we all lose when workers uh, are treated poorly. So, so there's many approaches that are needed. This is one that we've seen work here, and I look forward to hearing more about some of these other products. This is great, thank you. I think in the context of the labor um, and, and management discussions, you have done what a lot of you have been doing, which is, you know, there's a lot of listening going on to what are the challenges and what are the strategies that would help people address those challenges and move forward and get to that stability issue that Clint was talking about and then also kind of leverage that stability for mobility, right? So what are those things? So what I'd love to kind of come back to from you all are, as you're listening to Marie, what resonates in terms of the kinds of challenges you were hearing her talk about and the additional, and you said that's one way, are there other things that you're hearing, and maybe it goes back to you first, Diane, about when employers are beginning to understand the drivers and the levels of financial stress, mm -hmm. um, is there growing interest in addressing that? And it may not get all the way to you know, the ex examples that you were having, but what is the level of agency and leadership that you're seeing in the employer community around taking a bigger stand toward helping with employee financial health? I think employers, for the most part, absolutely do get it. They understand that employee financial wellness is really tied to their bottom line, and it behooves them to invest in their employees just, just the same way they invest in their employees with other, with other benefits and other things. So I think they understand. The, the, I think the conundrum is how to deploy and what to deploy as their program. So what should we put out there? The way, so, sort of what you alluded to, which is, is it counseling? Is it some kind of coaching, which are different things? <laughs> um, is it some kind of new snazzy app that comes out? And, and I'll tell you, that I think the key that, that, that employers who really get it understand is there's no silver bullet. There's no one singular solution. Um, you know, when we see that people are lacking this emergency savings, one of the levers they tend to pull is um, their retirement plan. They go to their retirement plan, they take a loan, they take a withdrawal, they satisfy that need for immediate cash flow, and then they try to work to replace that. We know in, in looking at the numbers that that's an extremely de uh, deadly thing to do in terms of trying to accumulate money in the long term for retirement. So plan loans, plan withdrawals tend to increase. And it's funny because we, we not only do we ask the same questions year over year to try to get a trend line and things like that, but we add new questions every year to try to make sure that we stay relevant and stay, stay fresh with our content. And one of the questions we asked last year was um, not only did you take a plan loan or a withdrawal, but do you plan to? And last year, um, the Gen X group was the biggest group that said, yes, I plan to take one in the near future. Well, when we looked at the data this year, guess which demographic said, yes, I took a plan loan or withdrawal? It was the Gen Xers. So they told us last year they were going to, and they actually did it this <laughs> year. So um, I know that a lot, of, a lot of people are talking about plan design, tightening up the rules for loans and withdrawals, thinking that's going to help solve it. Um, sort of the way we've kind of put people into the retirement plan using the, the auto-enroll. And the, and the problem is, it's not a bad thing. It's just that at the end of the day, we're not addressing the root problem. 
And if we're not addressing the root problem, we're pushing people into the plan, they're saving, but then guess what? They're taking the money right back out through the leakage. So how do we fix that? If we remove that lever, think about someone who's got maybe a lower paying job who um, looks at what are the things they can do to, to satisfy this emergency need. Well, they don't have money in savings, so what's the next best place? Well, I'm gonna go to credit cards. Well, guess what? A larger number of percentage of people are telling us they are not only using their credit cards to pay for household necessities they would not otherwise be able to afford, but they're also telling us they're carrying balances. 70% of millennials told us they're carrying balances on their credit cards month to month. So maybe credit cards are not a lever they can pull in order to pay for those emergency expenses. So what do we go to next? We go to the retirement plan. If we tighten up loan and withdrawal, now where am I going? Maybe I'm ending up with payday loans or something else, unless we have something else that steps in to fill the void. Maybe you have something to add to that? A few, a few <laughs> thoughts on that. Um, first, I want to say I think your point that, that it's not a silver bullet is really important. And we've been, I think employers are used to providing benefits that they generally think are going to be used by all of their employees. Mm -hmm. Health insurance, you may have a variety of plans, but you assume everyone's going to take one of them, more or less. Retirement, the same. Once you start going beyond that, I think you have to think about the segments of your employees. Um, because you may have a variety of types of employees. There may be a traditional sort of management and hourly wage dynamic. You may have a set of people that are millennials struggling with student debt. And then you've got boomers that are struggling with approaching retirement. So it does take a, the time to actually think about what do my different employee segments need. And the, the first bit of advice I give to any employers is talk to your employees. Um, I think we've found in our research, maybe you have too, that people are actually more willing than you think to talk about their financial struggles. They may not want to tell you their balances, <laughs> but they'll tell you that they're stressed. They'll tell you they've got too much student debt or they've co-signed on somebody else's student debt. Yep. And they'll tell you that they don't have that savings that they really need. Um, and you can do this through surveys. You can do it in focus groups, one-on-ones. There's a lot of ways to collect this data anonymously or non-anonymously. And we're seeing some employers start to do this. And then you can start to think, once you've got some of this data and you've talked to your employees, besides the fact that just doing that engenders already engagement, that, that then what kind of solutions do I need? Um, so I'll point out just a quick, few quick ones. So first is I do think we need to think about credit in the workplace, um, especially because you have data on the fact that that, that that employee is employed, which is one of the hardest things for any lender to verify. You have that data and you can verify instantly as their employer. You can then dramatically reduce the price of that credit. Um, and there are a variety of options or products that just advance wages that you've already earned. So maybe you're halfway into a two-week pay period. Can I get that first week of pay early? Uh, it's not really early, because actually the employer is just holding it for you, right? Um, two, actually getting installment loans at affordable rates through my employer. Um, I think then you also need to think about student loans, one other piece I'll just mention. Um, this is actually one of the hottest topics in the employee financial health space knowing how big student debt is becoming such an issue over $1 trillion in student debt now, um, that employ uh, millennials especially are coming into the workplace with this debt, you know, $25,000, dollars $100,000 in debt. And so there are a number of companies now that are offering the employer the chance to actually contribute directly to that debt. Mm -hmm. So you can contribute directly to the 401k, or I could actually directly pay down that debt, Common Bond, SoFi, Tuition.io, they're all doing this. Uh, even just $100 a month can make a real difference. And there was a survey that said for millennials, like 86% of them would think about staying with an employer for five years or longer if they helped them with their student debt. 
So like if that's an, an employer proposition, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. well, and just to be clear, student loan balances of 50 or $100,000 are still really rare, even among millennials. Um, but for those people who have balances like that, and even for people with much smaller balances, it contributes to really what I took away um, from your comments, which is the overwhelming complexity of financial life for a person who's on their own and the role that employers could play in providing stability. Um, we see that in a couple of different ways in our data. The first is the enormous volatility in incomes that's typical for households in America today. A third of households in a given year will experience a gain or a loss of at least 25% of their base income. Huge swings, um, which actually hides what may be the real problem is month to month mm -hmm. instability, week to week instability, and not knowing um, what paychecks are going to look like. And so products, programs, services, that help to breed stability in all different aspects of financial lives. And we have a decent sense of how that works for higher income employees. Um, for most of us in the room today, building savings automatically, um, using leveraging the power of payroll in particular, mm -hmm. retirement plan leakage is a challenge. Are there ways to use similar mechanisms to build short-term savings to siphon off some of the demand that's putting pressure against retirement savings. We're, we and many others are looking at sidecar accounts, both in this, with respect to retirement and in other areas, where money would automatically go with each paycheck into a short-term savings fund parallel to the retirement. Once it hits a threshold, which could be variable, could be set by the employer, could be set by the user, the money starts, that contribution starts flowing back in retirement. If it's spent down, the contributions start again. And this is where short-term savings, where financial need is so different from retirement savings. Mm -hmm. With retirement savings, it's super easy. No offense to all the people in the room working on retirement. <laughs> you, you put money into the account, you leave it there, and it grows over time. It's very linear. Short-term savings, you have to build the money up, but then you have to help people with accumulation and then building it back up yeah. over and over and over again in a permanent commitment. And things that reduce the complexity of already incredibly complex financial lives of households aren't a silver bullet, um, but are a nudge in the right direction. I'd actually um, add, add a couple of things to you, and then I'm going to kick it over to you, and then you all can start thinking about your questions, because I'm going to turn to you next to ask a few questions. So I think the volatility, we've looked at volatility a lot this year in Epic as well, um, with you all, and just trying to figure out what, what all the knowledge is around this issue. But certainly when we come to solutions around things like income volatility and just the precarity of work life, there, there's two camps of issues. So on the one hand, there's how do you help people manage it? So emergency savings goes there. So do innovations in insurance, right? Because if you can be resilient, not because of your own liquidity, but because there's a product that helps you with something that's highly predictable in a big pool of people, that sounds like an insurance product might be a better fit. Mm -hmm. And so this three-legged stool for short-term security for managing is credit and insurance and emergency savings. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of things that we've been looking at that are more about labor market reforms that help to just reduce volatility in the first place. And that goes to the structure of jobs, that goes to predictable scheduling. Um, I wonder, you know, going back to you, Marie, if there's other things to kind of reground this in the structure of work. And as you look forward, you know, how do you complement the innovations around solving people's problems that they happen with preventing some of these problems from potentially happening in the first place? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a few pieces here because still we see thousands and thousands, if not more, of people that are looking to just get a job where there is predictable scheduling, right? Um, where um, they can make 
a, a, a decent wage so that there's just some sort of stability in their life. So when we get people in jobs in, in the hospitality industry, they're earning, they're doubling their wage, but there is still that unpredictability because it's seasonal work. Unless you've been there long term, if you've been there long term, you can make this work. You're going to work full-time hours. One of the things that uh, labor and management are beginning to talk about is to see if there can be a way to have a minimum of hours per week, per year, so that there is some sort of base there. People work more, that's fine. They're going to earn more. But it takes away some of that uh, unknown. Yeah. Great. Uh, any other final comments? For, well, not final comments, but, um, and then we do have mics. Uh, so I would say that when you ask a question, raise your hand, we'll bring a mic to you uh, and state who you are and ask the question. So as we're getting mics to the room, is there anything that any of you want to just jump in with and respond sure. to each other? Um, just while mics are going around, I think that part of the interesting challenge going forward, and bear in mind I'm a researcher, so I'm a little bit biased towards this, <laughs> is we have tons of great ideas, but don't really know how they're going to play out in the lives of workers, um, particularly in the holistic financial lives. So as things like base hour programs, as financial employer financial wellness-based financial wellness programs roll out, it's essential to test and evaluate to really mm -hmm. understand the effects. Um, my friends who work in programming and app design always say that there's the app that you design, and then there's the one that people actually use, and they're not the same thing. And <laughs> I think that really understanding the dynamics of these as we roll out so we can iterate and improve over time is crucial. Great. First question, Do you raise your hands for people. Stand up. Hi, Heidi Hartman from the Institute for Women's Policy Research. And I guess I, I noticed the remark that, well, we can let employers decide how much workers will put in their temporary savings account. And I just went, <laughs> um, that made me nervous. But what about employers deciding to raise wages? And I don't want to be like totally, you know, whatever, ideological about this, but since 1978, men have not gotten an increase in real wages in this country. And it's not surprising if 50% of families feel insecure because all the men below the median, high school graduates only, they don't, they, they're going downhill. Now women are doing a little better, they're going slightly up, and even the low-skilled women haven't had as much wage loss as the men. But this is a really serious crisis for capitalism. And you know, maybe we can deal with it with some cute savings accounts. And my mother is 99, and she never earned much more than the minimum wage. And she managed to save a, a half a million dollars. So I know it can be done by very low-income people. It's not that. But I think we have a bigger problem here. It's not just unstable hours. It's not enough wages. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I noticed I run a, a nonprofit. and. I had employees, and I noticed that for 10 years, I did not have to raise the wage of an entry-level employee because there were that many college graduates coming to Washington eager to get that entry-level job. And I was reading all this research about real wages failing to rise. And I finally said, I am part of that problem. <laughs> and, I, and we rose wages substantially for entry-level workers. I don't think we would have had to. I think we could still get them from the same wage of 20 years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we did it. And you know, this is like a moral crisis that I think we also need to be talking about. Yeah. That's, that's and, all. and I'll say thank you. All to react. Thank you, Heidi. And I, I'd love to, you all to respond. I would say that um, also don't feel like you have to over-respond from where you sit in that sense. I think part mm -hmm. of the reason Maureen and I um, and Prudential, I mean, I think part of what makes us Bridge Partnership is we are really trying to have more rooms 
where the people who come to this from a perspective of labor share of income has been declining over time, and that's a real systemic problem, and wealth in stores and wealth inequality and ability to build savings is also problematic, that we don't have enough rooms where people who are solving each of those problems actually come together and figure out how those solutions mm -hmm. work more holistically. So I would say, you know, jump into that question, but also realize that part of what we're doing here is that there's a lot of ways here that we are all grappling with that, that asymmetry of some of the solutions feel small in, the, in, in some ways. And at the other ways, there's ways that technology and financial innovation could potentially help solve things as well. So, but to that point about wages and issues and the relevance of these issues together. I mean, I read a statistic the other day that the average recent college graduate, their hourly wage is $19.23 an hour. And then I compared that to the average wage of a housekeeper that's starting out in Boston. Um, and it, it, it did make me think, well, what, what is the difference? Who's advocating? Um, it's the same thing. I, I run a, a nonprofit. I have 15 employees. And we have lots of interns who want to come through. But we, we have philosophies that you know people should be compensated for the work that they do. Um, and that maybe we should even be taking a look at, you know, how much we compensate ourselves in turn, right? So that we're doing the work to make sure that we're bringing everybody else up. Um, I mean, it's not a conversation to shy away from. Wages have stagnated. That's a big part of this problem. Yeah. I'll just make a comment. I think, uh, so yes to your comments. Like <laughs> wages the, and the problem of wage stagnation is huge. And I think, um, there are a lot of solutions to the problems that we're talking about in this room. And there's a whole series of policy and labor solutions that are going on that many of you in DC are dealing with every day. Um, and I think yes and at the same time, there are also market-based solutions and employer-based solutions that can make a difference. They don't make up for it, right? I don't think any employer should get away with offering some cool FinTech product in lieu of raising wages or having fair and affordable wages, right? So let's all be clear about that. But Assuming that they've got wages at what they think is fair and market-based and, and all the things we can agree on, even then, as you were saying, with fair wages, there is volatility. There's a need for savings. There's a need for insurance and retirement and a lot of things that employers can do. And given the current political environment that we unfortunately live in, there are, I'm actually seeing so much innovation in the private sector that that gives me a little bit of hope while we also try to figure out the political challenges that we have to deal with at the same time. Great. Next question. Thank you. Uh, Eric Reddick, Small Business Majority. Thank you for the panel for bringing up some great points here. Um, so jumping off what Heidi was talking about, employers, uh, you know, we're talking about employers that have 100 or fewer employees. So they're employers and they're employers. Uh, the true small mom and pop shops, as you mentioned, they're pragmatic folks who would love to implement some of these programs, but they don't have the resources or time, frankly, to, uh, you know, uh, bring some of these programs in. So I was wondering if the panel could talk about uh, the mechanisms that are out there right now that small business owners particularly um, you know, can use to help their employees save. I know uh, you, uh, one of the panels brought up the retirement auto IRA programs. I think that was something that, uh, at least from our group, um, we heard employers from across the country saying, we love this hired, uh, idea in states like Illinois, California, Washington State, and Oregon. They, they really ate that up, and that's something that you know, was exciting them. So I was, I was wondering if the panel could just give us a broad overview of maybe uh, some programs out there that small business owners in particular could 
uh, implement now that'll help their employees save. And I'll mention that we do, the next panel is the solutions panel, but I think that you all do have some <laughs> ideas here and we've only got about th three minutes to close, so some quick lightning round here and here's some of the other questions and I think we'll be able to parlay it into the next conversation as well. Small business. So it's probably a combination of some um, technology uh, resources because you can use leverage when you have technology along with some self-help and potentially some in-person work. So, so it's a combination. Every, every employer has a different combination of what their solution is going to look like in terms of how they're going to deploy that particular program. So I think it's that combination that you have to look at and start to parse in terms of what piece fits where. I, I would add, I think, for a small employer, it's going to be hard to piece together your own special magic potpourri of solutions. So I think you have to look to your broker or consultant, your payroll provider, yeah, your retirement true. or insurance provider. And more and more, we're seeing them add ancillary services or partnerships with third-party programs. And I think that's part of the way we get to scale for solving the solution is to see more yeah. of those large players that can affordably bundle good services together, get them out to smaller employers. Yeah, Yes, I think certainly in terms of the retirement side, both the, what was happening with state innovation and the open map idea were both ways of pooling risk, driving down cost, um, you know, and having more options available for small employers to, to take advantage of because you know that they care about their workforce, right? And they, these, are, these are families in many cases. And the nice thing about technology is that, and I think especially payroll innovation, that there's a lot of new white label types of solutions that can be slotted in mm -hmm. in different places. So. Um, I think there's probably a lot more questions for this group. I would actually encourage you to think about how you can ask them to the next panel uh, because our time is done here. But um, I want to I thank every one of you for being so thoughtful. Um, and also, uh, thanks very much to uh, Prudential and Maureen for teeing us up for a great conversation. Thanks. Thank you. So here's our feel-good panel of solutions. Um, to the uplifting statistics that we heard. Thank you, Pew. Um, so when I approach a topic, or actually when I'm writing a story, I start off, um, you know, the hardest part about writing, anyone who's ever written anything is starting and then figuring out how do we, uh, how do we frame this article. And there are three main questions. The what, what is the issue we're talking about? And the first panel was the big what. Uh, the now what, or no, sorry, the so what. Why should we care about this? Um, what, is, what is the reader really asking here? Why should they even uh, uh, call this their concern? Why should they even click the headline? And then there's the now what. And so we're, we're going to cover some of the so what, but also the now what. What's the next action you can take? What can we do to, uh, to help alleviate some of the stress? in this area. And so uh, I'm going to introduce the panel. Uh, to my right, we have Andrew Sullivan, Andy to me, and <laughs> the rest of the room. Um, he is the president of Prudential Group Insurance and also a former nuclear submarine officer. I read that. Um, so Prudential's been on the front line of uh, uh, serving employers uh, and, and, and employees. You have your own 50,000 plus, is that correct? that number correct, worldwide, but also working with companies um, to serve as financial, serving as financial services. And Prudential is launching a new platform that addresses the holistic nature of, uh, of financial well-being, really working 
um, to address the needs of the whole worker. So what we talked about not just insurance or retirement savings, but our everyday lives, um, how money impacts the decisions we make and the stresses that we feel. We'll talk about that some. Um, over here is Jamil Punja, uh, the Senior Growth Strategy Manager at Stride Health. Uh, it's all the Silicon Valley company, right? We're the for-profit folks up here. Uh, and this is a benefit platform uh, for independent workers and part-time employees. So we're talking about the gig economy. Um, and Stride Health recognized a gap, uh, a market gap, in terms of helping these uh, part-time workers find health insurance but not just in terms of shopping the market, but in actually identifying the all-in costs so someone is going to pay for this, um, and helping them use the product. Uh, Stride Health offers support. Uh, I love this, I, I read online uh, that your, a Stride Health uh, worker will spend hours on the phone with your insurance company for you, uh, so I'm going to be taking advantage of that. Um, uh, but also you recently identified uh, an issue with uh, underuse of tax deductions and, and credits for these workers. And um, I think that's an innovative solution we'll talk about a little bit more. By the way, I talked to my Uber driver on the way here and asked about these. First of all, he just started a month ago and he's saving his gas receipts and he said, I don't know what to do with them. I'm like, ah, have you heard of something? So you're welcome, Stride <laughs> Health. <laughs> you can send a t-shirt to me. Um, uh, Camilla, uh, sorry, Camilla Nestor um, is the Chief Business Development Officer for Neighborhood Trust Financial Partners, and this is super cool. This is a um, nonprofit that provides financial uh, consulting on a community level um, uh, in New York, as well as showing large-scale employees. So this, here's the idea of, of um, piloting a program with, a small, with smaller employers and uh, and being able to roll out um, uh, to larger, larger companies to make the default for low-income workers to be money man management and financial stability, that that should be provided. Um, many of these workers, uh, as we discussed, are in the home healthcare uh, field, um, retail, food service industries. Um, and Neighborhood Trust, you recently partnered, we're talking about the FinTech angle here with FlexWage Solutions, this is a for-profit tech company, uh, to test a low-cost solution for short-term uh, short cash crunch crisis, which, as we heard from the previous panel, can be a huge issue um, to financial stability. Uh, and you oversee the employer solution wage goals as well as other strategic partnerships. And then on the end, uh, we have Amanda Hannell, you're the associate I'm just going to tell you who you are. You're the Associate <laughs> Innovation Director at Commonwealth, um, which for 15 years has worked uh, with financial services firms, employers, academics, directly with people who live daily with financial vulnerability. Um, if you've heard of prize-linked savings or the save to win um, or the gamification effect, there's a good chance Commonwealth had a, had a big hand in that. Um, uh, a recent article in The Atlantic uh, uh, really illustrated well how effective these programs have been. And here again, starting with the smaller employers to build a pilot program, you mentioned that you're now working with a small firm where the main language is Cantonese. So if you can make that work there, then rolling it out to larger employers. And uh, Commonwealth has worked with Staples and Walmart. So there you go. Uh, so now I want to kick it off and just have each of you talk about um, 
the specific problems that you're solving for employees. We'll get to the employers uh, in just a bit and at how you're doing that. And we rock, Rochambeau, we rock, paper, scissors <laughs> here, and Andy was the winner. So if you could kick us off. Or the loser. Or the loser. <laughs> Depending yep, which yeah. way you look at it. You're a winner. So, you get to kick it off. <laughs> absolutely. So uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, and I'm really excited to be able to, to be a part of this forum. I think it's been a great conversation so far. And I'm very appreciative to uh, the individual that asked the question and used the word crisis. You know, that, that research that we just talked about, while many of us have read it all, when you talk about it all together, you really, you really do feel the impact, and we do believe that it is, it is a crisis. So, but we also believe that uh, it's our responsibility to help solve, uh, and specifically, we believe that employers have both a responsibility and a really large opportunity to help solve the issues that we're talking about today, um, primarily because their, their employees trust them. Our research still indicates that employers are trusted and employees want to work with them to find solutions. So research from the Actuary Magazine shows that 75% of employees would like to be able to seek financial education in the workplace. Our own research shows that 64% of employees want to go further and find solutions uh, in, the, in that workplace environment. So we've been working with employers across the country and talking to them about they need to go deeper and be more holistic. So clearly, a lot of employers have very strong benefits plans in place, but it has to be a holistic conversation. If you think of your own financial lives or, or those of your loved ones, it, it's, a, it's a holistic conversation. So Steve started the day out talking about the way that we define financial wellness. The reason we've gone down that path is we, we feel that employers need to offer capabilities and solutions in day-to-day -day discipline around expense management and budgeting in helping set goals for savings and investing, whether that be, be emergency savings or retirement savings. And then they need very, very strong solutions, insurance solutions for protection. So what we're really working on is to try and get those solutions in place for employees. The how also matters greatly, right? Because at the end of the day, we're talking about how do we get employees to act? How do we change behavior? So engagement is a big conversation that we have, and we place a lot of focus on it. We found, uh, and I, I love the comment around testing and learning, because this is a journey that we're all on together, and it's going to take a lot of testing and learning. We're finding that simple and fun make a big difference. Uh, we're finding that personalization is a very important aspect. It has to speak to each individual's need. It's not a one-size-fits-all conversation, and that it requires a lot of follow-up uh, and provide, it's important to provide very easy, easy action steps in order to get those uh, individual employees to take action and start down the path to becoming more financially well. Um, one of the things we've also talked about is how, how do you convince an employer to make an investment in this? Um, why, how, do you, how do you get them to spend money on, uh, on a solution? What are their pain points that are, we, you know, we've heard a little bit about what can help them save money, but um, I'm curious specifically, so I'll, I'll just pointedly ask you, Jamil, what's Uber get out of this? What does Etsy get out of this? Yeah, so Stride is making health and financial wellness easy for anyone who's an individual or part-time worker in this country. So just a raise of hands as I get this. Who here has ever used an online platform as a worker on that side, whether it's Etsy or driving for Uber or anything else? And who ever spent a summer working a part-time job? 
So it's an issue that affects everyone, right? And when you actually look at the economy today, we're inching up on 43% of the country being independently employed in some way. Um, that's it, from Intuit's report going back to 2010, looking at where they're getting. Um, and when you look at it, it's not an issue that just impacts people who are either gig workers or self-employed. Um, it's part-time workers. When you look at research today, 80% of companies are looking at how to make their workforce more flexible before 2020. And so it's impacting everyone. Um, and so what we did was build products that could make it really easy as an individual to get health coverage originally. And yes, we're now helping as Stride Health, you file your taxes too, which we'll get into. Um, but I think what employers have realized is that they have large contingent workforces that are not benefits eligible. And to Andy's point, are still coming to them, trusting them as a resource when they think about their financial wellness and their health. And so they're seeing that it's an easy way to serve a need that they have. And so you know whether you're an Etsy or an Uber or you're a large employer, whether that's a restaurant or retail company, you know you have non-benefit non eligible employees who are looking for help and who need the same health care that everyone else has. And they don't have an easy way to access that on their own. So for them, it's about serving a need that their workers have. Um, it's making it easier. If you take the average driver or seller that's using Stride, they're healthier because they're getting health coverage um, in a much more efficient way and actually have it. They're utilizing it um, so they can do more of the work they want to do, which means they can actually do more on that platform or for that company if they're working somewhere part-time. Camilla, you had mentioned to me uh, some, some employer goals here that um, weren't immediately obvious to me. Uh, covering this topic, but one of them is increasing direct deposit. Sure. And so, how did you how did you? Yeah. So we broadly in our employer portfolio, we see roughly three kind of categories of employers in terms of what's driving them to invest in uh, employee financial health. Um, first are high road employers who are see their employees are in financial distress and want to proactively address it. Second are employers where employees are clearly asking for it. So as one example, um, we work with one of the largest hospital employers in the New York City area. Um, and in a recent survey, they found that 49% of their employees noted that the biggest stressor in their lives was financial stress, with health a distant second at 29%. So in that category, we're seeing employers are hearing from their employees that they need to be doing more. And the third category, to Diana's point, um, are employers who are facing a potential business pain point that we can help them solve. So one example is a retailer we're working with in the New York City area whose direct deposit rate is well below the national average of 82% and who uh, the uh, retirement savings plan participation rate is about 13%, so way below where they want it to be. We are providing our sort of trusted advisor counseling model coupled with an approach to drive initially direct deposit because we think that's a really foundational tool to help people better manage their day-to-day -day cash flows. We're a big fan of split direct deposit where people can segment savings, uh, a part of their paycheck into savings and start to build the short-term savings we heard so important in the previous panel. And from there, once people have a solid, stable foundation, we'll be looking at addressing the retirement savings mm -hmm. challenge. But there's this really sort of powerful combination of these behavioral approaches that are proven to drive uptake and usage, coupled with sort of a live human being who really understands your position, who you trust. And because of that, you're more likely to take the small actions that are needed to get to financial health. 
we're going to get back to the trust issue because I think it's a big one, and this is one of my big questions. But um, Amanda, do you want to talk about uh, some of the pain points that you're solving for? Yeah. So um, I just love everything the panel said so far. I want to that those are basically <laughs> what we're solving for. I'm just going to make it short and easy. Um, no, we're really kind of looking at what employees need in order to be more financially secure. So the first panel, I thought, did a wonderful job of covering it very well. Um, emergency savings is huge, but also uptake and use of benefits that are currently offered. We're also seeing some huge shifts in how employees are interacting within um, their employers today. So minimum wage hikes are happening. 19 million people affected to the tune of 60 billion a year in uh, new wealth that will be from some of the most vulnerable folks. Uh, how do you take advantage of that? How do you actually think about transforming that into savings and into financial security? We're actually doing an event out in San Francisco at the Office of Financial Empowerment today to hear from employers about that and how they can think about leveraging some of those moments. Um, also around products that they're kind of in now because that's what their employers are offering. So uh, high-deductible healthcare plans are offered by a third of employers now, so it's a huge and growing thing. About 50% of the folks who have high-deductible healthcare plans have HSAs. So that there's a gap of 50% of people who are expected to come up with large sums of money in order to cause in order to cover their health care who just don't have the ability or even the product to do so. So how can we think about working with employers, working with employees kind of together to think about both how to leverage items that they have and to fill gaps that they also still need. And can you talk a little bit about how you do that, some of the more specifics? Yeah, so we take a three-pronged approach. So one, how do we make you want it? Um, so engagement is really huge. And Andy's going to be my new best friend up here by the end of it. Um, but making it simple and engaging is huge. Um, we, uh, as in the introduction said, also focus on things like how to use prizes to incent people to make it fun, to make it aspirational, how to use gamification in order to make people want to learn. We did a lot of work with Staples um, to think about how to engage their employees and their associates in terms of thinking about their healthcare um, and their retirement funds and thinking about how to leverage some of those. We have a suite of video games. Um, but also kind of the second piece is do we have the right time? that you're hearing about it. So minimum wage hikes or when you're getting raises in general are huge. It is an opportunity to think about changing your financial well-being in a way that isn't really open to a lot of people before that because you've kind of said, I can't do this. I'm not feeling great, right? But sometimes you have those job moments mm -hmm. um, that are really huge. And then the third is about thinking um, to you know, the earlier panel's point about are there new products that we can offer that we can think about so is there a gap in terms of emergency savings? Is there something that we need to be thinking about in terms of loans and things like that that we can uh, roll out with employers? So kind of that trifecta. Right, right. That's great. Um, let's talk a little bit about the evolution of the relationship between employer and employee. Um, you know, before we had defined, defined benefits programs, we knew that our pension, you know, our pension was being funded, um, and now that's you know all dusty old history these days. Um, and, and, and a lot of the onus is on, and most of the onus is on the individual employee. So here, in terms of financial well-being, what is the role of the employer? What should, what's fair, the expectation, what should it be, or should public programs be picking up um, and plugging in here more for employees? So I'd like you to 
Okay. I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. So, so first, I think that the right place to start is there has been a shift over the last several decades where, where you could use the word the, the burden has shifted from the employer to the employee. And that's across the entire benefit spectrum. Right? So we talked a little bit uh, already about health care right, with the, the proliferation of high deductible health plans. Um, but it's also happened, uh, obviously, across retirement with the demise of the defined benefit plan, but all, and also across the insurance products, where in the life and disability space, those coverages used to be predominantly employer paid. And over time, uh, they've become more voluntary offerings where the individual employee now needs to fund them. So that obviously is, is accelerating or, uh, or exacerbating the challenge that, that faces individuals. Um, the good news is, as we go through with employers, you know, a lot of the drivers around that was competitiveness and, 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 and as the economic downturns came through, the need to stay competitive as an employer. But back to the point of they still care. So we're finding that they very much want to find ways that in the current benefits environment, they can employ financial wellness capabilities to help their employees um, make better choices, uh, to help their employees come out to a better place. But there, there absolutely has been a shift, and it, it still is an employer responsibility from, from our perspective, mm -hmm. as well as that's what employers tell us. They still see this as uh, an important mechanism by which they can attract talent uh, and retain talent. Um, and when we talked a little bit, it has a real bottom line uh, impact on employers. So they're, also, they're interested in it because they obviously want to do the right thing for their employees, but they're also interested because it has real hard dollars and cents impact. Um, whether that be they're not currently getting a great optimization of their benefit spend. Um, so loans from a 401k as an example, I'll just quote back in 2012, $70 billion of loans were taken out of the 401k, which was 59% of the employer match. So you think that's all, you know, two steps forward for one step back. They're trying to help their employees, but through a, a variety of reasons uh, and not connecting the dots and having a holistic conversation, um, they're actually seeing a detraction. So they, they care because they care about their employees, but they also care because it really impacts the bottom line. Yep. Uh, anyone else on the panel want to address that? I think that competitiveness is no different for your part-time worker or for anyone who's independent. Right? And I think when it comes down to it to that point, it's about the take-home pay you have at the end of the day. Uh, you know, we noticed, to what Dan alluded to earlier, when we were helping people with enrolling in health coverage, that the majority of people, when they were estimating their income, weren't claiming any deductions. They're all self-employed. And so there's a gap in financial literacy that exists. What we did to solve that was roll out a tax court program this year uh, where we're literally helping everyone who drives for work. So whether that is for the rideshare driver or the nanny or the caregiver or the plumber, um, track their mileage, log their deductions, get access to tax support, and file their taxes. And what we noticed with what we rolled out this year, looking at just January through tax day this year, was that drivers, we identified our drivers logged north of $500 million of deductions which are dollars being left on the table for them. For most drivers, that's 40 or $60 back in their pocket every single week. And so I, I told, think we- I told Michael that this morning. So. <laughs> and so I think, I, I think, I think what, what businesses are seeing is that they can actually help their workforces more. And what that means is like workforces actually like believe they're getting more out of the work they're doing through that employer or through that platform.
Uh, let's talk about trust. Um, because I've heard people, uh, I hear people talking about, well, they trust their em employees. Well, and I'm thinking in the mind of the consumer, okay, there are two things, financial services industry, financial services products, and the boss man. I don't want the boss man to know, get into my private business. I don't want them to know uh, the specifics about what my situation is like, other than what they pay me and how well I'm doing at the company. Um, but are you, are you coming across these, uh, any pressure here? Um, the lack of trust of financial products, um, which can affect uptake uh, and participation, the wariness about um, privacy issues at the workplace and with, um, with your employer. Uh, how do you address it? And is there a line that can't be crossed or that shouldn't be crossed? And what is that line, if there is? <laughs> Maybe I'll jump in. Andy hit the nail on the head when he said one of the reasons the, the workplace is such a promising sort of environment for this is people tend to trust products and services that are being offered by their employers. But that doesn't really get us over the hump of these major trust issues that most LMI clients that we work with are facing. Um, and just to give you kind of a concrete example, we find that most of the clients that we work with, whether through our technology-based tools or through our trusted counseling program, have had a negative experience with some sort of financial service provider. So you're starting from this trust deficit. So you're really, it's like the most critical initial piece is building that trust. Um, number one, to get people to recognize their current financial position, to see it. And then number two, to be able to set goals and take actions towards those goals. So they need to feel comfortable with either the technology application they're interfacing with or with our counselors. And it's really interesting when so we speak to our counselors and ask them how they build trust with this population, it comes down to two main things. First is no judgment. So like language, body language, just being extremely careful in terms of how they speak to this target market. Um, can make them feel safe and like they're not being judged. Most of them are coming with sort of fairly significant financial challenges that they feel it's their fault for getting into that situation. So that's number one. And then number two is showing immediate results. And so a lot of people will come to us in some sort of distressed situation and they may have received a collection notice, for example. We can help them resolve that really quickly and then you've sort of built this foundation of trust, and from there, you're much more likely to get them to take action and move towards kind of these bigger order financial goals. I think one comment on uh, Diana's question about sort of privacy and the workplace, we definitely see that. People really want to understand that when they're interacting with us, whether it's through our wage goal product, which is fully technology enabled, or through our trusted advisor counseling service, that it's confidential. So we go above and beyond to stress the confidentiality. We only share aggregated information with the employers, which is frankly what they want. They really want to see an aggregate, how these services are benefiting their employees. Um, but you definitely have to kind of constantly reinforce that. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that. And I think you know one of the big things that we're seeing when we talk with employees is that sometimes it's these past experience with financial institutions, but especially longer term savings products like 401ks or 529s, these products that do have you know, fairly significant penalties that if you take out, that there's a lot more of a trust hurdle to get across something like that um, than there is to get across something that's a more flexible savings product or advice that they can kind of take or leave. So if there's transparency built into the product or the ability 
to have centralized control with the individual, that they can make their own choices and go back if it doesn't work for them as they thought. That builds trust in and of itself. Um, but some of these longer-term products that, of course, we want people to be thinking about their financial futures are beginning to get harder and, you know, often are harder to operate with um, more financially vulnerable consumers who have had a bad experience with it in the past. Mm -hmm. I think part of it comes down to the fact we talked about before is that consumers now have much more responsibility as individuals. Um, whether it's because of high deductible health plans or because of the options out there when it comes to financial services, as you think about saving, it's tough to navigate the market, um, which I think is you know, one big facet that's driving that. The second piece is like, the desire for personalization that you talked about before, which is that I think people want confidence that what they're being offered is right for them. Um, you know, for everyone here who has a full-time employer, you know, you probably had three or five choices when it came to what your health insurance looked like uh, when you were looking at things for this year. Um, you know, when I saw that, I worked previously at a much larger company, um, you know, I, I couldn't always be convinced, one, that I knew what I should actually be doing for myself, um, or two, that three choices would really work for our CFO, who is much older, has a big family, and for myself. Um, and I think that's what people are looking for, and they're looking for guidance to actually navigate that entire process. It's not only about health anymore, it's now about all different pieces of like your financial wellness. I think there's, that last point is an excellent one. We see two levels of that, to make sure that the, the solutions are, are really personalized and, uh, and, and then adopt it. The first level is really at the employer level. So we do a lot of work um, around discovering with an employer what are the unique challenges for their employees because not every employer you know, is the same. Different industries, different geographies. Um, from that, we then look at their benefit plans because we need to understand what the gaps are. Then we get into how do we then take a needs-based approach to help people understand what's relevant for them to the point you're, you're making of people are in very different places even in, even in the same firms. And the fact that you can come up with bespoke options for um, for employees, I think that's important for employers to know that uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be cookie cutter. And also uh, partnering with third party providers when you need when you do that. And how? Why did why did uh, why did you go, Amanda? I'm looking at you. Uh, <laughs> why, why did you go to that direction? Um, yeah. So I mean, we kind of create and innovate a lot of different um, potential solutions, which means we don't have the capacity to kind of offer everything in-house or to do all of that. And so we really look to the market about what people are doing well, what can we leverage and think about. So um, oftentimes there are already great firms that employers are doing business with. And so then we think about how we can leverage some of those things better um, or if we can create something that hooks into what is already offered. It just makes it a lot easier for everybody. Um, and so we do a lot of work with financial service providers. Um, and you know that can be things like, they already have their HSA or their retirement plan that they're offering, but people don't understand it. Um, language, clarity of language, or just kind of the overwhelming stress that can go along with trying to understand some of those options are real things that we try to address. And so in that case, right, we've created things like uh, we have a product called Savings Quest that hooks into um, the savings account for somebody and helps you save really small dollar amounts, kind of Fitbit for savings. Um, or we you know, have actually created full-blown games that explain like, what is your retirement plan and why do you need to save. So we have one called Fight Club where you're running a vampire nightclub because retirement's eternal. 
super hokey. People love it. It's great. You guys should play it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but in those cases, we don't actually need to replicate the financial product that sits on the back end because if that product is good and if it's trusted and if the employer trusts it, that's great and we can use that, but then we can explain it to people and get people to engage and use with it, which oftentimes financial service firms have trouble doing. So is there a whack a debt? Like whack-a-mole? Oh, we actually have yeah. one called Farm Blitz, uh, where nice. you get to line up different things, and there's rabid bunnies that are your debt that multiply. So <laughs> ask the question, get the answer. I like it. I like it. Um, let's talk about measuring the impact, because uh, uh, I write a lot about investing for Nerd Wallet. So Warren Buffett, my dear friend, and I, uh, when we look, not my dear friend. Um, <laughs> When we look at businesses in terms of what's a good long-term, uh, uh, what a good long-term investment will be, uh, one major part of it is looking at how well does a company treat its employees. And there's some very uh, specific metrics that you can look at, you know, based on salary, benefits, retention, promotion from within. Those are all easy to measure. When you talk about financial well-being or financial health, it's a bit squishier. Uh, so, and if I'm an employer looking at these kinds of products that are available out here, these solutions. I want to know, how do I know, how, how do I know if this is successful? Um, so do you want to, yeah. I'm sure, I'll, I'll start. Um, first I'll go to, to the, the word I use, journey. Mm -hmm. This is a journey. I think we, we have a lot more work to do and a lot to learn uh, as, as, as an industry and, and as, uh, as a group. Um, it starts at the individual level though. Right? It starts at measuring engagement, back to, the, to that discussion. And that's as straightforward a, as um, you, you know, look, watching and understanding how individuals are engaging from a financial education perspective, how deeply they're going, how much time they're spending, um, all the way through the degree that they're adopting solutions. So are they using, using budgeting solutions? Are they using emergency cash uh, solutions? So, you know, really need to understand and find ways and test and learn. So as, as an example, um, maybe not surprisingly, as we've engaged with employees, we've found that uh, it is much uh, easier to get them to engage with content on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Um, probably because Mondays are crazy uh, and, and Fridays they may have other things on their mind. But really getting in insights of, of when is the right time and what's the right method in order to get that engagement. Have and you worked at a dot com? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have not. Okay. <laughs> um, then it rolls up, though, to uh, our customers care about uh, employer metrics, mm -hmm. uh, and, and they and they care again about um, aspects around productivity. So it was mentioned in the earlier panel, and it's absolutely true. We have a disability income business. We see financial stress that results in absence from the workplace. Um, presenteeism, measuring productivity, is important. Measuring that they're getting the optim optimal benefit spend and return on investment. Um, so those are the type of metrics that we, we need to show the engagement and then how it produces a bottom line benefit for the employer. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, I can jump in. So yeah. it, we look at both qualitative and quantitative um, impact measures. And on the quantitative front, we're really looking at the employee's sort of overall financial picture. Because we're able to pull, do soft pulls of credit reports every six months, we can see, for example, and measure uh, quite concretely, changes in credit scores, reductions in debt, things like that. 
We also look at increases in assets, which is a really important measure for us. Sometimes that's self-reported, sometimes we're able to pull it, for example, through the wage goal tool, which links into someone's bank account, we're able to see increases in savings accounts. So we're really looking at kind of some of the most basic fundamental measures of financial health at a quantitative level. At a qualitative level, we're looking at two things. We're looking at how the employee feels about him or herself, so increased sense of control over their financial lives, increased confidence and ability to deal with financial issues, and then also how they feel about their employer. And the employers we work with really love to get this feedback, but we hear things like close to 90% of the employees we work with say, I'd tell other people, I'd refer other people to this workplace because it's a great place to work. So you get these really kind of warm, fuzzy feelings from employees towards their employers as a result of this as well, which um, is great for the employers and is part of the, the value proposition for them. Uber could use some warm fuzzies occasionally, right? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think what, we, you know, what we've seen with this is, so for individuals to begin with, um, is really understanding like what the value is to you of having things like healthcare, right? So we hear from people all the time that, look, I'm paying my premiums every month. I didn't have to go to the ER. What's the point of having coverage? Um, it's a big cost. It's probably the biggest financial wellness cost to people at the end of the day. Um, and that's why we made it really easy to help them actually understand how to utilize their coverage. Because it's the biggest issue we saw time and time again was people have coverage. It comes with benefits inside of it that people don't often use. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you level that up to what it looks like for an employer with a contingent workforce like this, it's the ability for that workforce to actually work for them or to do the work they're doing. Uh, you know, we're putting more and more burdens on being independent today as a society uh, for lots of reasons, from both you know, a set of where business is going and what the workforce looks like to also like how does policy actually get done in this country um, and, and where has it been focused. And, you know, that's not just about the Uber driver or about the seller on a platform of the part-time worker. It's that we have more and more and more independent people running their own businesses in the country. Um, whether they are plumbers that you call on the phone and pick up that you don't find from a platform, um, they don't have that employer. Um, it's, for the employers though, it's about unlocking the ability for more and more people to be able to be independent and use their platforms doing that, which today is not as easy as it could be and will be going forward. Mm -hmm. I'll just very quickly say we do a lot of the same qualitative and quantitative work in terms of looking at our um, products. So we often start with really small tests to see is it working, is there demand, do people kind of want to take it up? Um, just really basic stuff that often get kind of bigger folks to say, yeah, that's interesting, I want to try it, I want to look at it. And then kind of proving out that bottom line business example. So both measuring for the employees, you know, is this actually doing what we think you want it to do, and is it actually based in that research that this is something you said you wanted, um, and is it actually helping you achieve those financial goals and those outcomes? And then for the employer, uh, are we actually taking a step back and saying, did this achieve what we thought it was going to for you? Like, did those dots actually connect? Because sometimes we say, we think this is going to help you um, have a more financially secure workplace, which is going to save you X dollars or to do some of that work, but we don't actually know. Um, because that translation isn't always exact, right? And so being able to say, how did this impact um, some of those numbers, some of the tax benefits that you can get, some of those types of things, and kind of looking at more holistically from the employer's thought is something that we do when it's kind of a bigger test as well. Speaking of holistically, um, we had a talk. I, I asked, uh, we talked a little bit before all of us, I said, are there regulatory concerns here? And Amanda, uh, you brought up a really interesting one, that employee uptake of some of, you have to be careful of, employees taking up uh, some of these benefits that might threaten some other 
benefits that they receive. Yeah, so especially with lower wage employees, asset limits are a really big issue in a lot of different places. And so thinking about how you're actually offering sometimes things that you think are going to really help your employee and you're really going to help them, but they can't actually take it up without being taken off of the housing assistance or some of those other types of programs. So this is where it gets really tricky to think about some of the um, public benefits and some of the private benefits that you're offering and how they intersect. Healthcare savings accounts are a really interesting example because they're not super well defined in the law right now, so a lot of places haven't even contemplated them, but we're expecting people to put $2,000 in them, which is often more than your asset limits, right? So if you're doing what you need to do to be securing your benefits, even if your employer is helping you get there, a really smart employee may say, I'm not going to take that up or save that money or participate in that really good program that you have because then I'm going to lose my childcare or I'm going to lose my house, right? So you have to think about how your employee actually lives in the world, not just kind of at your employer because there's so many other issues that they have to face and that they're thinking about. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure, uh, we're going to go to questions in just a minute, but um, I want the panel to address the now what, provide a now what for the room. So uh, what is something that in policy analysts, employers, uh, I don't know who all you are, but <laughs> um, and associates, what is a step that so someone can take in the room, can take today to sort of further at least this discussion, um, uh, ad ad adoption of some programs, looking into things. What, what's something someone can do today to make it, to at least start uh, the engine for change? So who wants that one for, we didn't Rochambeau on this. I can. Yep, Jamil? So I think there are two things, and it touches on the policy lens we were just talking about. I think one is that today, many employers are not able to support their contingent workers with any form of benefits. Um, so you work somewhere part-time, use a platform, you know, that employer can't contribute to benefits for you today. And that's a growing part of this country that's not getting any help from their employer in terms of real dollars in there. I think that's a conversation we can absolutely start. I think when you look at the average driver, the average ride share driver isn't, that you talk to, isn't looking to drive full-time. And so they're not looking for a full-time employer, but I think there are employers out there who are interested and want to figure out how they can incentivize people using their, working for them, using their platforms, who want to contribute in some way. I think second is that, look, there's a growing, growing like, sense that we need to look at like, how do we actually connect benefits with your work, not just your employer. Um, you know, there's been a larger conversation about portable benefits in this country. You look at retirement savings accounts or anything else, like more and more people aren't using them um, I need to, but it's also because you're not, no one's helping you do it. You know, if you're an independent worker out there or you run your own business, you don't have an employer who's making that really easy for you. And so I think starting to figure out how we drive a much larger lens around where the economy is going and how we actually make sure people can get benefits. And then the role employers have in that is really important. Okay, but just building on that, I would say two points. One is investing in services that help for employers, help their employees get to a baseline level of financial stability from which they can plan for the future. 
And then from there, you can really like, look at these creative ways to drive uptake of benefits, right? To the point the earlier panel was making, we see tremendous leakage in 401ks. It's because people don't have the financial stability they need to be able to leave that money there. And so getting them to that position and then driving better uptake of benefits, which benefits both employers and employees, um, is an area for additional focus. I think one of the things you can do today, um, if you're an employer, is just helping people split what their paycheck is. So a lot of employers have really great pipes where they can put your paycheck into multiple different categories. Um, just putting it into a savings account helps people tremendously um, actually be able to think about that. So that's virtually zero cost for you, something that you can do tomorrow without a lot of fanfare or anything else, something intuitively easy to understand. Once you have something like that that's going on, then you know, come talk to us and we'll help you figure out other ways to do things. And Andy. So uh, when we talk to employers, it, it, they often say, where do we start? And, and we have to be careful that that question isn't the reason that they don't start. Um, so you know, while financial education is not the, the, obviously the be all end all in the end, we often say, start with education and helping demystify this conversation um, in a non-judgmental way um, so, so that the general literacy can start to improve. And then that opens the dialogue and the path to do a lot more from there. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to open it up for questions. We have microphone people uh, and show of hands. This. Hi, Catherine Reed. Um, I work for a nonprofit called Bright Paths. And one of the things that hasn't been mentioned here at all is paid family leave, paid sick days, and the impact on workers when you leave it up to individual companies to decide whether or not people will get paid time off or whether or not somebody has time off for a child. And I mean, we are watching the birth rate plummet in this country, and people are like, I can't understand why the fertility, I like how they call it fertility rate, <laughs> is falling, but nobody talks about childcare, universal pre-K, and paid family leave is both taking care of aging parents who are sick, taking care of yourself when you have a, a major illness like cancer, or having children. And there seems to be no political will I work with the National Partnership for Women and Families who are working with a coalition of over 300 organizations asking why this country is one of the last developed countries on the planet that does not understand how we have to support working families. Mm -hmm. So my, my question is why, why are we not talking about that is one of the ways that we support low-income workers. Right, well I think um, talking about like holistic financial health, that is an issue um, that, uh, that affects the whole person, financially, um, personally, but can you address a little yeah, bit about uh, uh, I would start by saying I agree. That's a very important area that I think we need to focus on and get better from, a, from a, a, a support and a benefit perspective in the country because it does drive um, not only uh, um, it, what, it, what it ends up doing, and we see this in our disability business, is individuals coming back into the workplace who aren't really in a place where they, they're productive anyway. Right, so it ends up costing employers. Um, so when we have that conversation, it's not as expensive or as costly as, as might be thought um, because of the downside of it not being in place. So I, I do believe that that is an important conversation that, that needs to, to get some lift and some voice. To put a number on that, um, Thumbtack, which is a marketplace for local services and I used to work at, uh, released a study uh, a little while back that uh, looked at the independent workforce in general and more than half of the people surveyed said they couldn't afford to take any time off whatsoever for either to deal with their own health or to take care of a child. 
Um, and so it's an absolutely big issue that needs to be addressed. Thanks for this panel. This is great. I'm Sandra Davis, Sage Financial Solutions. One of the things that I think we heard in both panels was that the difference between need and demand. As providers, we see need. We know what people need. And I hear that there's a lot of different ways to look at demand. I think what I'm questioning is that how are we going to then make it accessible to the, the partners in the, the employees to actually know what's available to them and then understand that this messaging is different. We no longer have a three-legged stool. We have a bar stool, what you do for yourself. And so we're not messaging that. We're doing all of these things, and I think it's great. I'm glad we're doing it. But we kind of need to have that conversation on a larger level so that employees really do understand that, yes, employers care, and they're still on their own. Yeah. Awareness and you know responsibility, um, I guess on both sides. I think just it makes me think of just kind of the behavioral science around this. It gets people to take responsibility and take action. Um, and I think something that we found works in terms of creating that kind of empowerment and ownership around it is helping people number one understand their current financial position, but break like what they need to do down into really manageable like bite-sized actions and then using nudges and behavioral approaches to get them to take those actions. So they're, they've developed the plan, they're responsible for delivering on it, and you, get, you give them a little bit of help to get there, but they own it. And I love that, it's the coaching model, right? But they're, we are in a system, wages, um, childcare, so it's both. And that's why I do think that coaching really can help, but we can't just say personal responsibility when we're living in a system yep. that is oppressive for a huge part of the one hundred percent agreed. A question over here. Hi, uh, thank you for the panel, and um, also uh, specifically thank you to Prudential. You guys do a lot of really wonderful work around educating uh, people around need in your marketing and through your uh, customer uh, and your public affairs departments. Um, I am looking from all the panelists today like a moment of optimism. Because I hear, I hear that uh, Maureen started off by talking that this is a system where we're talking about norms that need to be created and evolve for the future. And what I've heard so far and what I see in the media is depressing wages and increasing risk that we layer on our employees and our teams across benefits. Um, I appreciate that Uber gets us from A to B, but they are not only you know, uh, depressing uh, benefit risk, but they're actually eliminating benefit risk for, for large numbers of workers. So what is the, 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 the optimistic norm that comes out of this conversation that helps us drive forward and maybe encourages policy changes that we need to support of you? So I guess that's my question. What is the policy change that would most help you in, in create these new norms in order to help our employees deal with both depressing wages and increasing risk at the same time. Mm -hmm. Who would like to tackle that one? <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's one perfect policy change that can do all of that. I mean, I guess where I'm saying optimism is, I think, partially heard by some of the underlying anger that you've hear, heard in some of the questions about why aren't we doing more as a society to fix some of these problems that are, are really huge, right, that need to be addressed through policy changes. I think most of us up here come from a product standpoint, which frankly takes as a given a bit what the current environment looks like, but you are starting to see these social movements that come in demand together. We have to have better minimum wage. We have to have more thoughtfulness about what kind of policies that we offer to support workers. You know, no one up here is disagreeing with any of that, and so I think if you look at how 
some of those things that lift all boats together um, can be done, and then how can we then step in as innovators and as product folks and say, great, the minimum wage is happening in a lot of different places, coming from kind of a standpoint that those are voters who are saying, yes, we need to have $15 minimums, we need to have more, we frankly probably need more than that. Um, and how do you then take advantage and say, how do we transform this into a moment to save and to achieve long-lasting financial security? And so I think we are in a place um, throughout with some of the policy work that's happening that really kind of complements what's happening and demanded from the worker space. I guess the only thing I'd add, and maybe I'm a, a bit of a dreamer, but from an optimism perspective, um, when you, you look at a room like this, I don't know that I've ever felt as, as much... Um, as, as much focus and zeal from both a, a, a public perspective, nonprofit perspective, and private enterprise that this is a crisis, this is a challenge, and, and we need to get after this. So from an optimistic perspective, I'm optimistic that, you know, um, I'm seeing a lot more energy starting to align in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I think what, you know, we're seeing is that you're having not only more platforms, but also large employers step up and want to do more. And I think it's about how do we actually enable them to do that now. Well, that concludes our panel. Thank you, everyone up here. Um, this has been a great conversation.